morning, everybody. My name's Chad, one of the pastors here. I want to say hey to everybody online as well. I'm excited because I know Jesus is here and that he works through his word. This past week, uh, I do chair time. We talk about chair time, which just means finding a chair, sitting in it every day, if you can, to spend time with the Lord in his word. And I do that in the morning. And I've been using uh, an app this whole year called the Bible in One Year, which has been wonderful. Um, which I want to kind of give a, a little pitch. I'm going to do it again next year. Um, this past year, uh, Dave Meyer suggested it to me, and I've done it. It's been a wonderful thing um, for my heart and just to be consistently in God's Word. And so I'm going to invite you to do it with me this next year. Uh, I know there's several on staff who do that as well, and um, maybe we'll have uh, a place on our website or somewhere that we can interact together with God's Word no pressure, but if you're looking for something, I'll be doing that. Um, but this past week, uh, it started in or it's the book of Revelation. And something that I had read before, but I forgot, um, said this. And I think it's something that applies to this morning as we think about listening to God's word. It said about Revelation, about the prophecy, about God's word in that part. It said, blessed is the one who reads it aloud. Blessed is the one who hears it and blessed is the one who does what is written. So just in the reading out loud and in hearing God's word and in doing what it says, there is blessing. There's a promise there. So if you're ever in a Bible study and somebody's like, anybody want to read this verse? Don't pass. I'll do it. I'll do it. Because there's blessing just in reading. And so the cool thing is it takes the pressure off of me a little bit this morning and off of you because what it says is that the living word himself working through the, the text of scripture will do something. He will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And then it puts it on to us to listen and to obey. So I want to pray for us um, with that in mind because that not only applies to Revelation, it applies to the whole Bible. And just in hearing God's words, why it's so important for us to be in it. So would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that uh, your word also promises that when it is sent out, spoken, it will not return void. And God, that all that you intend for it to accomplish, it will accomplish. And so, Lord, we know that there's the power and potential through the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit this morning, according to the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is available to us this morning to bless us, to change us, to transform us. And so, would you do that? Would you go after our hearts, Lord? Um, I'm sure there are lots of things on our minds, lots of things that we're thinking about uh, in this current day that we live. And so we bring them to you. We know that you care about them. We ask that your word would change us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Luke's gospel. Uh, so if you have a copy of God's word, open it up to Luke chapter seven. Uh, you can also follow along on the screen up here. And if you're online, the text should also be there for you. But I encourage you to have your own copy of God's word and have one that you can write in, that you can take notes in. God won't get mad at you for writing a summary out to the side of something that you think or something that's blessing you and underline it, get it to a place where it is becoming a part of you. You'll be surprised how God will write it on your heart. And how words and scripture will come back to your mind. So Luke chapter 7, just as a reminder, this book was written by Luke to his friend Theophilus, who wasn't so sure about this whole Jesus thing. Wasn't quite convinced. 
And so Luke said, I'm going to write something for you. In fact, I'm going to write two books for you because he wrote Luke and Acts all for his friend, Theophilus. It's quite a friend to say, I want to give you something. He wants to give him evidence. And so today, there's no mistake how it's laid out, how the Lord directed him to put the stories together, what order they would be in, how the readers would hear these stories. Today, we're going to look at two people who were affected by, transformed by, and encountered Jesus Christ. And it's on purpose because what happens is if you look at somebody and you see, wow, this happened to them, you start to think, I wonder. And this is what Luke intended for Theophilus. It's also what the Holy Spirit intended for you whenever you would hear God's word that you would think, I wonder, might I be convinced, might I grow and transform? So Luke chapter seven, we're gonna jump in. First five verses, here we go. After he, this is Jesus, had finished all his sayings, After he finished his sermon, kind of what we talked about the last few weeks, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, which is this little dumpy town on the Sea of Galilee. Um, It was kind of a high traffic area. It was not, it's not very impressive today, actually. It wasn't very impressive then, but it happened to be the home of Peter and Andrew, James and John. It was Jesus' home base. It's where he decided to set up camp, where he was going to do most of his beginning ministry. Now, a centurion, which is a Roman soldier who was in charge of at least 100 men, had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. He liked him, somebody he cared for. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to Jesus elders of the Jews asking him, begging him, pleading with him, come and heal my servant. They came to Jesus. They pleaded with him earnestly saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him. He loves our nation. He's the one who helped us build our synagogue. He gave money. He's popular. He's important. We like him. Can you come and do this thing for him? I don't know if you've ever had those moments in your life when somebody comes in the door, breathless, out of breath, and they come in and say, he was there and he came, and you're like, whoa, slow down. Tell me this again. My kids have done that. I know I did that with my parents. You come in, you're so excited to say something. When I read this story, that's kind of, if I heard somebody telling it back then, if people heard what had just happened, they didn't read it like, oh, there's the centurion and he came to Jesus. Really exciting. No, they would hear, there's a centurion. I mean, a, a real Roman soul, like, you know what I'm saying? Roman soldier came up to Jesus and asked, and the, person hearing this would say, stop it, slow down, because I think you just said, you're going to have to repeat what you said, because I think you just said that a Roman centurion is asking to meet with a poor Jewish traveling rabbi used to be a carpenter. Can you say that again? That's what's happening. That's the kind of story. And the person would say, not just meet with him, but kind of how we do. And a friend of mine does this too, even when there's nobody around to listen, gets their voice real quiet and goes, and actually too, Heal him. That's just the craziness that's happening. He wants to meet with him and ask him to come and heal his servant. So take a, a step back and think about who Jesus usually ministered to. You kind of got a hint in the last sermon. It's the poor in spirit. It's the needy. It's those who are weak and wounded. It's the outcast. It's those who are maybe faithful synagogue goers, church goers, those who've been waiting for the promised Messiah to come. This guy isn't it. Roman centurion is not on the list 
of people that Jesus ministers to. This is not the kind of person who should be coming to Jesus. But you will see throughout the New Testament, actually it's in the Old Testament, it's in the letters of Paul, these kinds of people start showing up all the time to respond to Jesus. It's happening and it shouldn't be happening. The wrong people are responding to Jesus. The wrong people. They shouldn't. So let's think about Theophilus for a minute. Our first guy who read this gospel account, he's reading this. What kind of person is he? Probably well-learned man, because we know Luke says, most excellent Theophilus, one he can read. And so if you read back then, that was a leg up. You actually were already further along in society than most people. But he says, most excellent Theophilus, I've done all this work for you. I've put together an orderly account. And he puts together Acts, this massive tomb, basically, of stuff to read and consider. So he probably was a well-off man, somebody who had a lot going for him, somebody who had doubts about Jesus, who needed to be convinced, who wasn't ready just to throw away life and everything that was going on. So he's reading about this, and he reads about this Roman centurion, thinks about his life, made it in life leader of a hundred soldiers at least, has climbed the ranks of society and culture, kind of like him. He thinks about the circles he runs in, his profession, his reputation, his education, the ideologies that surround his lifestyle. And here he's got Luke coming in saying, no, I really want you to consider Jesus instead. He reads, and think about it, this is not coincidence, that Theophilus happens to read a story about a guy who's a Gentile. Theophilus is a Gentile, just meaning non-Jew, not a part of the original chosen people, and starts thinking, hmm, if this guy who is the wrong person is considering Jesus, maybe I should. The Roman centurion is the wrong person. The truth of the matter is Theophilus is the wrong person to respond to Jesus. And if I do a little letting the word work on me, God starting to come after my heart, you know what I say? I'm the wrong person. You're the wrong person. We shouldn't. We really shouldn't. The world would agree. Don't waste your time on the crutch of religion. Fantasies, myth to make you feel better about when you die. Focus on now. Focus on your reputation, on your life. And yet Theophilus is considering this because he's watching it happen to the Roman centurion. Have you ever been in a place, or maybe you are now, where you think, you know what, I could do without this. I'd be fine, probably. I would live my life satisfied, somewhat occupied, content without him. Here's the problem, though. Why do people keep responding to Jesus? Why do people you know, or even in your own life, have decided everything out here is worthless without him? Why follow him? What is happening in the Roman centurion's heart and mind to cause him to say, this is the only option? This Jesus is the only option. So we got an external plot 
when you study kind of storytelling and writing and things like that, there's always the outside, the external plot, and then there's the internal plot. And so a lot of times when you watch a movie and you're like, that movie stunk. One of the reasons it stunk is because it only had an external plot. And the characters, there's one of the reasons superhero movies, at least the older ones, don't work so well because the superhero is super at the beginning of the story, he's super in the middle, and he's super at the end. And you're like, yeah, it's all right. Now what do we find with our superhero movies? They're flawed. They have problems. They're struggling. They don't know if they want to save the world anymore. You know, that kind of stuff. They have love interests. Like, it's better storytelling. External plot just has stuff happening. Internal plot is characters are changing and transforming over the course of a story. So what's the external plot? We got a Roman centurion. He's well off. He's uppity. He's got money. He's climbed the ranks. He has a servant that he likes. He cares for. Wasn't unheard of back then to have somebody that was a servant who was also a friend, served with you in battle. He really cares for this guy. He has a pretty good reputation with the Jewish leaders in town. So, hey, why not? I'll uh, ask them if they can help me out. I help them out with a little money. And his servant gets to this place where he realizes, you know what? I'm going to go and see if that Jewish rabbi can do something about it. That's the external plot. That's what's happening on the outside. So what's happening in the inside? Let's look at the characters for a second. Disciples, somewhat off stage right now. They're not talking in this passage. We know they're there though. We know they'll hear about this later. We know if they're standing off to the side and they're watching the Roman centurion, they're like, uh-uh. Kind of the same way they felt about Matthew. Not him. Ah, Jesus, Woo. Move on, wrong person. They know he's come for them. They're Jews, Jewish people. We've been waiting for the Messiah. Not this guy, pagan worshiper. Get him out. Elders of the Jews, not religious leaders, not the priests, not the scribes, not the Pharisees, probably civic leaders, government leaders who I scratch your back, you scratch mine. He gave money. We, okay, fine. We'll go and talk to this Jesus guy for you. A sick servant a slave may or may not have been either an indentured slave or a chattel slave, kind of the kind we think about. Either way, though, this guy cares for him enough. And then we have the centurion, a Gentile Roman soldier in charge of 100 men, as we said, has made his way up the ranks. Rich, probably annoyed to be on assignment in Capernaum, but a few threads of kindness in him as well. He cares for his servant. He's helped to build the synagogue. All of this to say... If you look at those people, elders, sick servant, centurion, none of them are the right people. None of them are church-going type. And even you go to the disciples, neither were they. So far, everybody that shouldn't be following Jesus is, and the people who should are looking for a way to hurt him. Hmm, what's wrong with that? It's one of the things that I have said before, and if you know me, and if you have been here at all, there are things that I say over and over. And one day, if you leave this church and go to another and across town or you move, whatever, by the way, that's always fine. You go where the Lord's calling you. But if you do, you may be saying, because I've heard that guy say that so many times. He always says this. And so this is one of those things. And it's this, that religious people, religious thinking says only the good people respond to God. Only the people who do the right things respond to God. Only the people that have a good life and the gospel says, not true, not true. The wrong people respond to the gospel. So it's two ways I want you to think about the wrong people responding to God. One is the most obvious one is to think, I'm also the wrong person. I'm not worthy. 
I shouldn't be responding. Why am I responding? The second though is the more difficult one. And it's the one that might ruffle your feathers. It's that the gospel is for all people. All tribes, all tongues, all nations, all people, all political parties. Whereas right now we might say, yes, Lord, the gospel is for this half of America that I love, but not them. I don't, I mean, okay, fine. I'll be religious and kind. I know they need to hear too. But don't we add in our minds a little bit more though? Don't we say, fine, they can come to know Jesus too, but they're going to have to do extra. That's not the gospel. That's the religion in us talking. The gospel sees no one off limits. No one. In fact, Jesus goes for the hardest heart, the coldest heart, and the one who is most calloused. That's his record so far, even though people around him are saying, eh, I don't know if I like that. So that's the external plot. We're watching what's happening. How does Jesus move this guy though? What does he get to? What's the desperate place that gets him beyond the external plot? What's the why that causes him to move? What's the why that would cause you to move? That's what should mess with you. He's looking at his life thinking there's no reason for him to do this unless something is causing him to break. And I want you to think about this as we read the next few verses. Why did he break? Why did somebody who shouldn't break toward Jesus? Here we go, verse six. Jesus went with him, okay? Responded, went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Just say the word. Think Genesis one, just speak and it will happen and let my servant be healed at your word. I too am a man set under authority. I get it. I tell people what to do and they do it. I say, go, he goes. I say, come and he comes. I tell him, do this and he does it because I'm in charge. I know what that's like. I think maybe you are more in charge than anyone is what's underneath. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Turning to the crowd, he marveled so much that he said, I got to say something about this guy. Turned to the crowd and said, I tell you, I have not even in Israel among the right people have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, what do you know? They found the servant well. That is not the point of the story. The servant being healed. That was a given. That was easy. The centurion is the focus. The servant is healed, no doubt. The centurion is what Luke is saying. Theophilus, look at this guy. Look at this guy. Can you believe it? That he is turning to Jesus? And I think Theophilus is like, no, I can't. Why would he do that? Why did he go? Why did Jesus go? Just think about that for a second. Was it just because he asked? Think if you just take that one verse from scripture, you have not because you ask not, then what do you do? Well, just got to pray more. Just got to say the right words, say them frequently enough and God will eventually answer me. That's the religious stuff talking again. 
But that's easy to do, to take that verse. So why did he go? Was it only because the centurion asked? External plot says yes. He sent, please come. Jesus said, okay, I'll come. But there's a tension, and this is one of those other things that you're going to hear me talk about for as long as you choose to suffer my preaching. (laughs) It's the tension between what is God's part and what is our part, which will not be resolved until Jesus comes back. It's a tension that says you need to pursue him. You must obey him. Go after him. That's one side. And the other side says, oh, by the way, he's already at work in your life. And oh, by the way, you wouldn't even be doing this if he wasn't at work in your life. Where do I get that from? Philippians 2.12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I'm just, I'm afraid I got to work it out. That's the first half of the verse. And then it says, for it is God who works in you to will and work for his good pleasure. Well, which is it? Yes. Daniel praying, Daniel chapter nine. They've been in captivity for almost 70 years. He's reading the Bible. He decides to believe one of the promises and the promise said, I'll send you away into captivity for 70 years. He's, we're close. You know what he decides to do? To pray and to ask God, will you release us from captivity? And I love this Story, it's one of those that you just can picture. The angel Gabriel answers. And it says, he says to him, from the moment you opened your mouth, I was sent in swift flight to answer you. How cool is that? I love thinking about that. I was sent in swift flight to answer you. So which was it? Daniel's prayer that caused God to respond or God's promise in his word to end captivity after 70 years? Yes, both. It's the mystery of God at work in the human heart. For the centurion, Jesus comes because he's asking him to come, but he also comes because it is the right and appointed time for him to come. It's both. It's both. Usually you figure that out. You ask, God comes, and then you say, you were already coming, weren't you? Yep. Why did I ask? Because that's how it works. That's what I do. The servant, the sickness, the guy's relationship to the local elders, important. But you know what? It's a setting for the transformation of the centurion's heart, which had been planned before the foundation of the world. Jesus is right on time and the servant and the centurion is playing along. But even with this, even with the plan unfolding, just as God wants we still get to see a side of Jesus, which I'll be honest, I want him to say about me. And it's that part when it says Jesus marveled. So let's put it in 2020 language. Jesus went, wow, OM me. Okay. That's what he, he said, wow, look at this. Jesus saw something in this guy that caused him to marvel. And so I read that and I say, what kind of faith causes Jesus to marvel? The one who creates worlds with his voice said, wow, at a human being doing something. What kind of faith does that? 
So here's our dilemma again. I'm just going to say it in a different way because the Bible clearly states that faith is something we work hard for and produce on after a lifetime of loving God. Is that what it is? No, faith is a gift. It's a gift from God. It's not something you create. Well, can you back that up in the Bible? I can. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus is the author and perfecter of your faith. Philippians 1, 29, it has been granted for you to believe in Jesus Christ. Acts 3, 16, faith in his name, a faith that is through Jesus has healed this man. No other reason. Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1, faith that has been given to you by the justice and righteousness of Jesus. So if that's the case, Jesus, what are you marveling at? Your own work? Is that what's happening? If it's just a gift or did the centurion do something in receiving the gift that caused Jesus to say, Wow. Definition of a gift is it's something you didn't have and it came at someone else's expense. So even if you try the whole, honey, I bought this huge TV as a gift to myself, that's not true. It has to come from somebody else. It's given you didn't have it. Somebody else gave it. And so as I'm thinking about this question, what is it? What is it about him and the way he's receiving this gift kind of felt like the Lord pushed me in to think about there was a way, there was an approach, there was a joy and a surprise just in him receiving, not creating it on his own, but just in saying, okay, this gift that you're giving. The plot gets a bit odd here because he says, Jesus, come to my house. And then they say, he's coming. And he's like, what? He's really coming? Tell him not to come. Tell him I don't want him to come anymore. He's coming, he's going, you don't want him, you do. But you get a hint and a clue to the heart condition, the receiving condition that Jesus was marveling at. And it's this, you get it in a couple of phrases. Don't trouble yourself. I'm unworthy. That's why I didn't presume to even come to you. The subtext says this, I don't think I even deserve to have you think about me or even respond which is why I'm saying, just, just say the word. Don't come near me. I don't even deserve for you to have come near me. Will you say the word though on behalf of my servant? So what is it? What is it in the receiving? And I think it's this. He's not resisting. <clears throat> He's unresistant and humble in his faith. That's it. That's the part I think that causes Jesus to say, wow, unresistant, humble faith that willingly submits to the Lord's leading. Now think this, your faith will go as far as Jesus has empowered it to go. You merely need to let it happen. Let it happen. Don't resist. So it's Jewish policy never to enter the home of a Gentile. I think this guy knew that. I think it's one of the reasons he said, don't come into my house but also don't come into my house because I think I'm unclean. He recognized though, and this is part of the receiving, Jesus' authority was greater than his. This is following Jesus 101, but it's the class we like to skip. 
Jesus' authority is greater than anything in the whole world. Now, what do I mean? Well, this guy was a military guy. He understood. It's one of the first things I've heard they do in the military. They get you to the point in basic training where you will say what to an order? Yes, sir. Without flinching. I will do this. And what I've heard too is because in combat, you don't want somebody going, I don't know if I want to do that. There has to be immediate response. You are in authority over me. And so the guy says, look, I get military stuff. I get structure and order. That's why he says, I tell people to do things and they do them. I see authority in you that is greater than just getting people to do things for you. I think you have authority over sickness. I think you have authority over disease. I think you have authority over evil which is why I am bending my heart to you right now to say, will you do this? Which pushes us to ask a question, who is really in charge of our own lives? Centurion, he knew that what he was hearing about Jesus combined with his understanding of true power, true authority, the ability to command something to be done. This was a, I know who the true king is moment. I know who the true king is. It reminded me of another story. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? What are people saying? And what do they say? Some are like, oh, they say you're a teacher, you're a prophet. And he turns to Peter and he goes, how about you? He knew what he was gonna say. Peter, what do you say? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's it. Wow, that's it. You have received what I have given unresistant, humble. That's what brings Jesus to the wow moment. Is your faith unresistant? Are you humble? Are you bending the knee to Jesus' complete sovereignty over your life? Or is he a gift that you may or may not return? Have you kept the receipt on Jesus? Have you kept the receipt? Could you let him go at a certain point if he is not useful to you anymore? Or are you ready to recognize his absolute authority and kingship? So that's the centurion. That's the moment. That's the first person I wanted to show you this morning. There's a second one. And we're going to do this one like we're going to buzz the tower. Just very quick on this story. Because it's actually the way the story is told. Let me read verse 11. The last few verses of the passage. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. Not this last trip to Israel, but my first trip to Israel, we were on the bus and we drove and our bus driver or tour guide happened to say, like we're literally driving by past. And he goes, oh, that's Nain. And I was like, what's Nain? I was like flipping through my phone. Oh, it's like four or five verses. There's Nain. It's about as quick as the story goes and it's about as quick as we went past it. And it's how I want you to think about Nain this morning. I want you to think about Nain as like quick trip. Jesus is just popping into Quick Trip real quick. So soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and he said, don't cry, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, which is just a, a plank that they would carry the body on. The bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up, began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother, gift. Fear seized them all, I bet. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. 
God has visited his people. This report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. I love to think about the before and after of stories. I imagine Jesus walking along the road with his disciples. Here's Nain. There's the road to Nain. And he stops. Now, he's fully God. He's fully man. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself. It doesn't mean he emptied himself of being God, but it says he gave up the equality with God, something to be grasped, which if you kind of put that down into our terms, it means he gave up some of his rights. In other words, he became killable. I would venture to say that that was a right of being God that was not possible before. He became killable, so he gave up some of his rights. At times, he tells the disciples, when are you going, when's, you know, when is all this stuff supposed to take place? He's like, that's not for me to know. That's only the father who knows. Wait a minute. I thought you guys were like a thing, you know, Trinity and stuff. They are. But at this point, Jesus is dependent on the spirit and the father. And so he walks down the road and he, we're going to Nain. <laughs> and the disciples are saying, wait, 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 what? We got to go. That's a, that's this is not a town you want to go to. It's a quick trip. You know, let's, let's just go. Let's keep going. We got bigger things to do, more important people to talk to. Jesus turns around, looks at them. This is me in my imagination when I read the Bible. I think Jesus had lots of looks, you know? And sometimes they're like, this, sometimes like, you know, just, but I imagine him looking at them and kind of like this, like, hang on a sec. I need to run a quick errand to name. And I want you to think about this story in that way, because what he does here, raising the dead, is nothing. It's so easy for him. And this story is also about authority. Although this time it's not a centurion that bows the knee, it's something much bigger, something that has had a say since Genesis 3 on every human being. Death gets a lesson in authority. That's what's starting to happen. She's a widow. She's lost her only son. Back then, it meant loss of income, loss of the ability to provide for herself. So it was a bigger deal than just, I lost my son. Jesus has compassion on her. He's all powerful. He created the world. He can raise the dead, but he stops to say, don't cry. Now, he knows what he's going to do. So she would figure that out eventually. But he stops to say, don't cry. I see your tears. I know what's happening in your life. I know what's going on with you. I'm not missing that. That's our God. He gets us. He understands every detail about our lives. He walks up to the funeral procession. Imagine that in our day. Jesus coming up like crash in a graveside service. Hey, just thought I'd come up here and touch the coffin. We wouldn't be so happy about that, right? We're, there's protocol. There's things that you do, things that you don't do. He interrupts the service. He touches the beer, the thing that he was being carried on, he speaks at your word. Young man, I say to you, arise, just a word, all power and authority. And this time it's not the centurion who's learning about Jesus' authority. It's death itself. Revelation, the book of Revelation tells us Jesus holds the keys to death and hell, controls them, eventually says, I'll unlock you and take you and throw you in the lake of fire, destroying you forever. At this point, still a little bit of power. So Jesus has to tell death, bend the knee now. Death says, okay, okay. 
death has to oblige. It knows its place. The young man sits up and starts talking. You think a few people started screaming at this point? Yeah. Like everybody's ready to say goodbye. This guy sits up, says, hey, ah! like people freak out at that kind of stuff. This is not like, wow, look at what you did, Jesus. Okay. But it really is for Jesus, like picking up milk at Quick Trip because he has authority. Centurion knows it. Death knows it. It's nothing to him. All power, all authority. So if this is easy for him, shouldn't we be confident of his ability to take care of us, to oversee the comings and goings of the world, the United States of America, our lives, the small details. He sees those tears too. But also, shouldn't we be quick to bow the knee? So the centurion, the widow at Nain, but really what I want you to think about is death bending the knee. And I want to tell you about one more person. And this person, a lot of you know this person. Um, this one will be quick. And the worship team, if you guys want to come on forward. Yesterday at 10.50 a.m., our brother, Bob Bolant, crossed the finish line. Stepped from this life to the next. He is face to face with Jesus. The joy of his salvation. He fought the good fight. So I heard about it. We had been um, told that he probably had hours. And so after I heard the news, I decided to go for a hike yesterday up Garvin Heights in his and Jesus' honor. And I made a video, so I want you to watch this. Hey, church fam, Pastor Chad. It's a Saturday afternoon. Uh, this morning at 10.50 a.m., uh, one of our very own, our brother Bob Bolant, a warrior for Jesus, a son of the King of Kings, uh, one who fought well, and I was talking to his daughter Mary this morning, said he accepted Jesus in 1974. I was two, um, but has stood with and fought for and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and he contracted COVID and with some underlying uh, conditions also this morning was the day. Um, but ultimately, I'm reminded of some passages of scripture um, some of them that say, you formed me, you knit me together in my mother's womb are not all the days of my life written down in your book. And so as you guys have heard me say many times, today was the day that was set for Bob Bullant. Uh, some other verses, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. Yesterday's children called me and said he's hours from the finish line. And I just thought about that. What would it be like to know today is the day? Today is the day you'll cross the finish line. Today is the day you'll hear, well done, Bob, good and faithful servant. A huge hug, I am sure, from Jesus. Uh, a smile on his face. And if you know Bob, buckets of tears in his eyes as he probably said, praise the Lord. And oh my goodness, you're right there. Praise you, Lord. Uh, he was somebody who pushed me to love Jesus. Honestly, if I can finish my race with the simplicity and love for Jesus and the word of God that Bob Bolant had, that'll be a good day for me. Uh, 
just rejoicing today, rejoicing in who he is. He used to, uh, pretty much every Sunday when he saw me, uh, would say, good morning, pastor. Are we going to preach the word today? And I would say, I hope so. <laughs> um, and usually it was followed with the praise the Lord, praise the Lord. He's good. Um, some verse, uh, amazing prayer warrior for the king. I think he led a Bible study in this city for over 40 years. I'm standing here at our uh, the top of Winona, Garvin Heights, which isn't that big uh, as it relates to the rest of the world, but it's our big spot. It's our highest point. And I would say that, and I know he was up here with us for some worship nights uh, and prayer times. I am sure he prayed for this city thousands of times. I am sure that he prayed for some of you who are sitting in church this morning or listening online for your faith, that you would come to know him. There's probably a good chance that he talked to you about Jesus. Some of you may be sitting there today because he fought the good fight. And just like I talked about uh, this morning, because I know I'm going to preach on tomorrow, um, that the most important thing is that you bend and bow the knee. You recognize the authority of Jesus. Bob did that. And I can't think of a better way to finish today uh, than that thought that he is face to face with Jesus. Amen.